evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm really thrilled to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium tonight. Uh, as you know, on view now is a fabulous new exhibition, The Armory at 100, The Armory Show at 100, and um, we are really delighted to celebrate it with you this evening um, with the program that's ahead. We also have a couple of other exhibitions on view that I want to make sure you're aware of. Beauty's Legacy, a great show of Gilded Age portraits on our first floor. And one week from tomorrow, we open um, a beautiful new exhibition, another art show, Clarice Smith, a wonderful DC woman artist, 20th century woman artist, um, which is called Clarice Smith, Recollections of a Lifetime in Art. So I hope I see you in the galleries. Um, any place in the building, you'll have wonderful art to see. I also uh, want to bring to your attention that, um, uh, thanks to my great colleague, Dale, Dale Gregory, our Vice President for Public Programs, um, we will continue this Friday, October 25th, with uh, context for the Armory Show at 100. Um, great historical context for the Armory Show at 100 with a screening of the film Grand Illusion by Jean Renoir. And um, that will be with Kati Mar Martin and New Yorker film critic David Denby uh, providing opening remarks. As you leave the auditorium this evening, um, do pick up a flyer that will tell you about all the wonderful films that Dale has organized with the help of uh, Bernard and Irene Schwartz. Um, I just want to remind all of you here tonight how important members are to this institution's well-being. So if you are not already a member, please join. Uh, members support wonderful programs like this one, our exhibitions and education for more than 200,000 New York City school children, public school children. And um, you have all of the benefits of membership, including discounts to most of our programs. Um, tonight's program, The Armory Show at 100, Modern Art and Revolution, um, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, uh, which is, of course, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many uh, fine historians and writers to this auditorium. Our program will last about an hour and it will include a question and answer session. As always, uh, we ask you to please stand behind a, um, a microphone that will be positioned to my left and to my right in the aisles uh, to ask your question. We ask you to do that so that the speakers on stage can hear your question and the rest of the audience can hear your question as well. And um, of course, following tonight's program, there's a great um, book which will be signed by our um, our speakers this evening. Uh, it's available for purchase in our museum store. So now, uh, this evening, I get the great chance and privilege to, in front of all of you, um, introduce and, in particular, thank and recognize two of my greatest colleagues at the New York Historical Society. Um, first of all, we are very, very delighted to welcome back Kim Orcutt, Kimberly Orcutt, who is the Henry Luce Foundation curator of American art here at the New York Historical Society. She's co-curator of the Armory Show at 100, and she's organized exhibitions on a variety of topics, including colonial portraits, George Bellows, and John Singleton Copley. Um, Ms. Orca has published and lectured extensively on 19th and early 20th century American art, and she is a past chair of the Association of Historians of American Art. Um, I am also really thrilled to welcome um, my colleague, Marilyn S. Kushner, who is the curator and head of our department of prints, photographs, and architectural collections. Uh, she is also co-curator of the Armory Show at 100. She's mounted more than 30 exhibitions focusing on subjects um, such as the photographer Camilo Jose Vergara, Victor Prevost, and Platon, images from 9-11 and Ground Zero, early 20th century advertising and prints, uh, Walton Ford watercolors, and the career of Morgan Russell. She was the former department chair of Prince um, Drawings and Photographs and curator of Prince and Drawings at the Brooklyn Museum. And now, just before we begin, I want to ask you to please make sure that anything that can make noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. 
And now please do join me in welcoming my comment, colleagues, my great colleagues, Kim Orcutt and Marilyn Kushner. Thank you, Louise, very much for that welcome. And we're, we're thrilled to be here tonight and thrilled to see all of you here. Um, I'm Kim Orcutt, my colleague Marilyn Kushner. We're going to be uh, batting the ball back and forth a little bit tonight. And I'm going to start out by telling you a little bit about the Armory Show, just so we have all the basic facts. Uh, the Armory Show took place from February 17 to March 15, 1913 in the 69th Regiment Armory, which is on Lexington Avenue between 25th and 26th, not the Park Avenue Armory, as, as some people think, and I used to think. And uh, in just less than a month, this, uh, this brief exhibition of about 1,400 works um, created what, what has been considered a landmark moment in the history of American art, and I wanted to give you a couple quotes from the period about the show. Mabel Dodge wrote to Gertrude Stein, there is an exhibition coming off, which is the most important public event since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> yes. And it is of the same nature. There will be a riot and a revolution, and things will never be quite the same afterwards. Uh, Walt Kuhn, one of the artists organizing the show, wrote to his wife, we will show New York something they never dreamed of. And the distinguished critic, Royal Cortiso, said, it was a great show, boys but don't do it again. <laughs> so uh, the exhibition is best known for introducing the American public to the European avant-garde. And uh, these new works that, uh, that are best remembered from the Armory Show by Duchamp and Matisse and so on, um, some, a few Americans might have seen uh, small shows of their work at uh, Alfred Stieglitz's 291 galleries or on their travels abroad. But the, the important thing about the Armory Show was that it brought these new works to, um, to a huge American audience and really started a conversation about modern art. The show traveled to Chicago and Boston, which made it, again, a national event, both, uh, both in its venues and in the press. And our project uh, for commemorating the 100th anniversary of the show was based on the idea of putting it into its historical and art historical context. And so we wanted to uh, give you a little behind the scenes look at some of our adventures developing the show and talk about um, some, some different kinds of things. Uh, we'll be looking at some of our interesting finds in researching the show, going back to the primary materials, We'll be talking about uh, some of our new discoveries from tracking down works that were in the show in 1913. And we'll also be uh, talking about some of the new ideas uh, that surprised us once we put all the materials together. So now I'm going to turn this over to Marilyn. Uh, if I had to sum it up in, in two sentences, I'm going to uh, quote an, a historian that I read. Uh, who wrote about our times, and he wrote this in the 1920s, and he said, if there's one way to explain what went on in, in the U.S. And, in, and New York in the early 20th century, he would put it this way. In 1909, when William Howard Taft went to his presidential inauguration, he went in a horse-pulled carriage. In 1913, when Woodrow Wilson went to his presidential inauguration, he went in an automobile. This was a time of enormous change, and what you see on the, on the screen here is just some of the things that occurred in and around 1913. Grand Central Terminal opened in February of 1913, and the reason it was renovated was because of electricity, um, that the new trains were electrically powered and not steam powered, so instead of using those huge train sheds that we see in many Monet paintings, um, trains didn't need that anymore. They could go underground. So no longer were the trains bisecting the city at Park Avenue. There were two levels of trains that came into Grand Central, and it could handle a lot more commuters and out-of-town people visiting the city. On April 24, 1913, um, the Woolworth Building opened. There was a huge banquet of over 1,000 men, men, no women, in white ties. And um, at 7.30 at night on April 24, Woodrow Wilson, sitting in his office in Washington, 
pushed a button, and every single light went on in the building, except for a few. I guess some people didn't have theirs ready to go. Uh, and it's not only the sense of the electrical power, the physical electricity, but the electricity of ideas that were occurring at the city at the time. And Kim mentioned Mabel Dodge. So on your lower left, you see a, an image of her salon, where she gathered thinkers from all over the city. Um, and they're not just people who thought about art. They were thinking about philosophy. They were writers. They, they were in theater. And they all got together to talk about the ideas. Greenwich Village at this time was when it really first received the, the reputation of being bohemian, where all of these young people came together, and many of them were in their 20s and early 30s. They were going to change the world, and um, the world was going to change because of them. So they started marching in the streets for women's rights, not only the right to vote, but women wanted the right to open marriages, they wanted the right of, to have contraception, and they wanted the right to have children out of wedlock, a radical idea in 1913. Uh, workers were marching for, their, for better working conditions. The Triangle Fire had just occurred in 1911. And so this idea was on everybody's mind. These, these immigrants were streaming into the city and were working under, oftentimes under very bad conditions. Um, if you think about the fact that in 1913, almost half of the population of New York City were immigrants. So that you have all of these people coming into the city, speaking a cacophony of different languages, bringing in new ideas, talking about them. New York was the place of the new and the modern. New ideas, as we've been mentioning, and modernity, um, such as the Grand Central Terminal or the Woolworth Building. And it was an age of communication. Instead of it taking two weeks to get an idea of something that was happening in Europe, imagine the feeling that you could pick up a phone or that you could send a telegram and have and have that information within a few minutes. We think that we live in the age of great communication. It might be instantaneous and far more instantaneous than it was then. But I think the difference between four minutes and 30 seconds is a lot less than the difference between two weeks and two minutes. So with that, I'll turn it back to Kim. So speaking about our research on the show, uh, we began work on the exhibition about four years ago, and that was um, not too much time. Uh, we were busy the entire time because uh, one, one, one reason for that being there is a huge amount of, um, of material from 1913 on the exhibition, and it was very important for us to be able to unearth as much information as we could find. Uh, when you're working on a show like this, you, you go back to primary resources, and uh, that's things like artist letters, newspaper accounts from the period, um, all kinds of things. And we're lucky that uh, the papers of some of the key organizers survive. Uh, the exhibition was organized by a group called the Association of American Painters and Sculptors. Its president, Arthur B. Davies, who is quite a study in his own right, uh, was a very secretive person who didn't leave much behind in the way of papers, so he wasn't much help to us. Um, but, uh, and the treasurer of the Association of American Painters and Sculptors luckily left the financial records behind, which were fascinating to us. We had them analyzed by our comptroller here at the Historical Society, who felt he did a very good job for a non-professional. He was pretty impressive. What was most helpful to us, though, um, are the papers of Walt Kuhn, the secretary of the Association of American Painters and Sculptors, who uh, left a huge cache of personal correspondence, uh, catalogs from the show, pamphlets that were distributed at the, at the show, postcards, photographs, all kinds of really informative and fascinating materials. And you can see a great selection of them upstairs in the introductory gallery at the top of the stairs right next to the library. And uh, Kuhn was an opinionated man who wrote to his wife very often. So we're, we're very lucky to have these insider insights on the show. And you see a few of the letters up on the screen. The one on the left is Kuhn writing to his wife, Vera, when he is in Europe selecting European paintings for the show. He's just been joined by Davies, and he's writing to Vera. Let's see if I can find this. He says, we have practically lived in taxis. They are running around Paris with the help of an American expatriate named Walter Pock, visiting artist studios, dealers, collectors. And interestingly, he says, 
We have crowded an art education into these few weeks. I found that a really fascinating thing to, uh, to read because what it tells us, along with some other evidence, is that uh, even the organizers of the show were learning about the avant-garde as they went along. And they began with one idea of what the European contribution would be like and ended up with something entirely different. In fact, there's an artist who later looks back on the Armory Show and calls it a sort of accidental revolution. And Kuhn has some other terrific comments. He writes to his wife um, upon seeing the uh, Sonderbund show in Cologne, Germany. He says, um, Van Gogh and Gauguin, great. Cezanne, didn't hit me so hard. <laughs> and so, and he, he takes a little while to, uh, to assimilate the new movements. He says, the Cubists I must first digest. So it is an educational process for them. And you see here his letter to Vera talking about uh, having um, just in the middle, what does he say? I, uh, I got the idea one morning in bed for the emblem of the show to be um, the pine tree from one of the regimental flags of the American Revolution, to give this idea of revolutionary art and the new spirit in American art. So those were tremendously interesting and useful resources for us to work from. And in fact, uh, they're at the Archives of American Art. They're digitized. If you ever want to get a little look for yourself, um, they're available to anyone. Those digital archives became very, very important resources for us all, all through this exhibition and all through the time that we were doing research on it. Another very important library that has, holds a lot of papers uh, that are very relevant to the Army show is the Beinecke Library up at Yale University. And I spent more than a few days up there going through Alfred Stieglitz's papers, and he is the, the, the figure on the bottom left of your screen. Alfred Stieglitz is known as a photographer, but as important as his photography is the fact that he was a very important dealer in New York in, the year, in, in 1913. And he had a gallery which he called 291. It was at 291 Fifth Avenue. If you go down there now, it's, I think it's between 30th and 31st Street. It's just a big building. It's a big modern building. But across the street are still the old four and five story buildings that was like the one where Stieglitz had his gallery 291. That's gallery, that's 295th Avenue still there and 292 is fifth, still there. It was very frustrating that 291 wasn't there anymore. And, um, and you can imagine Stieglitz is showing a lot of these artists that these European and some American artists that we see in the Armory show. But he was on the fourth floor of a walk-up. And um, he was not very welcoming. He really only wanted his friends to come up. And so he almost had like his own private salon. So you can imagine that somebody who doesn't know Stieglitz is a, people today don't like always going into galleries in Chelsea, which is on the ground level with big picture windows. They want you to come in. Imagine walking up four floors to sort of sometimes a grumpy dealer who, you know, likes his art, but that's basically all he wants to do is talk to other people that know about this art. So the American public did not know about this work. A lot of the artists, however, who were the American artists who were working in Europe at this time did know it. And on the top, we have an image, a photograph of Morrison Hartley, who became a very important American artist. Hartley was working in Paris at this time. He never did come to New York for the exhibition, so he never saw it. He went from Paris over to Germany, right, in early 1913. But he knows what's going on in Paris at this time. And he says, he writes to Stieglitz in November 1912. And I don't have a photograph of this letter because it's very hard to get the photographs from the Beinecke, so we had to transcribe everything when we were up there. I was wholly amazed yesterday with a call from Arthur B. Davies and Walt Kuhn, who, as you know, are all over here getting stuff for the show in February which from all accounts bids fair to be an electric show to America, really most encouraging to us Americans. Kuhn tells me he has Van Gogh's Cezannes and Gauguin's, and they are to have the Cubists and I suppose Futurists as well. They did have the Cubists. They did not have the Futurists. The, future, the Italian Futurists didn't show in America until two years later at the Panama Pacific Exhibition, which was out in San Francisco. But these are two examples of the Cezannes, one Cezanne and one Gauguin, uh, that, that was acquired, brought over by, the, by Davies and Kuhn. And on the left, you see the Paul Cezanne view of the Domaine Saint Joseph. This is a very important painting because it was the first one that was bought out of, an, out of the Armory Show and went directly into an American museum. It was the first Cezanne that was purchased for an American museum collection. And it went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art 
And the curator there, Bryson Burles, was so excited that he had purchased this, he wrote later, just four or five days later, he wrote to a friend, he said, I'm still flying high because I finally got the trustees to agree to bring this painting into the collections. They paid thousands of dollars for the painting. And on the right is a Gauguin of $5,000 for this painting was not what, I mean, that was a lot then, obviously not now. But Paul Gauguin on the right, both of these paintings are upstairs. Um, was also seen by the artists over there. But these are, these are the kinds of artists that, that the Americans who were in Paris knew what they were doing, and their work reflected it. As you can see in this painting by, by Hartley. This was a painting that is upstairs as well, and you can see in this, in, this, in this image that Hartley is definitely looking at Cezanne with the still life. He's looking at the Batises that he's seen, because of the fabric in the background. Matisse did a lot of this in his work. And he writes to Stieglitz and says, it was Davies who chose the still lives. He said, there will be nothing just like them. And this was a very modernist kind of a painting, which sort of didn't sort of, it did belie the fact that a lot of people have thought up until now that there were no Americans that were doing proto-modernist work. And one of the things that Kim and I decided to do was put all of those Americans who were doing somewhat modernist work together, unlike in the 1913 exhibition where all their works were scattered, to bring them all together so that the public sees that there were Americans who were working in a more modernist manner. Now for something completely different. Um, one of the things we really enjoyed um, was finding all the, uh, all the various kinds of uh, media responses to the show, and many of them were cartoons that are a lot of fun in and of themselves, but they also gave some great insights, some deeper insights into the way people reacted to the show and what they took away from it. And this is a, a fun example. Nobody who has been drinking is let in to see this show. Uh, you can see in the upper middle is an artist uh, exclaiming before his painting, this is Francis Picabia, the only European artist represented in the show who actually came to New York during the Armory show, gave lots of interviews, and became sort of the uh, unofficial ambassador for the European avant-garde. He's standing in front of one of his uh, Cubist paintings, supposedly, and he's saying, ah, mon Dieu, they hang him my masterpiece upside down. I'm not going <laughs> to affect a French accent very well. Um, but below that is a progressive cartoon of a critic. Um, unsuspecting critic does the show. You see him gradually becoming um, more and more astonished until he's taken away in an ambulance. And a few other examples on the left by John Sloan. This is called A Slight Attack of Third Dementia, brought on by excessive study of the much talked of Cubist pictures in the International Exhibition at New York. Now, um, it's, it's interesting in itself that this is drawn by John Sloan, the uh, acclaimed painter uh, from what we know now, now know as the Ashcan School, who was integral in organizing the show and very well represented. And two of his uh, gorgeous paintings are upstairs in Dexter Hall, as well as one of his prints. So he's clearly um, an advocate for the show. He goes on later to call it great medicine for him. But at the same time, he publishes this little lampoon in a magazine called The Masses with his poem. Uh, there was a cubic man, and he walked a cubic mile. And he found a cubic sixpence upon, upon a cubic style. He had a cubic cat, which caught a cubic mouse. And they all lived together in a little cubic house. So you, you get a sense of ambivalence here. It's, it's hard to tell. Is this a playful lampoon? Or uh, does Sloan really have some reservations about uh, the new styles? On the right is a cartoon called uh, A Near Post-Impression of a Post-Impressionist Room at the International Exhibition. And what you see here is Gallery H, the final, one of the most notorious galleries, the last gallery that included works by Matisse and Brancusi. The man on the right, with his arm raised, is Walter Pock, that American expatriate who helped select the European works. He came to New York for the Armory Show and sort of served as, a, um, as the official explainer and sales agent for the show. And what he's saying, you can't really read the caption, what he's saying is, um, 
This is from the one who knows, saying, stay with these beautiful things but a little while and they will begin to speak to you. And you can see all around him the way that they are speaking to the visitors to the show who are just falling down on the ground and in the same distorted forms as the Matisse's on the wall in the upper right is a, is a parody of um, Matisse's nasturtiums in the dance. And so you get a sense of the, um, of the concerns that the Armory Show is raising. Uh, Matisse and the Fauves were met with uh, a great deal of outrage and, and really outright anger because uh, there were concerns that uh, his work was considered retrograde and sort of a movement backwards in terms of um, his embrace of, of a more primitive style and of um, really anti-naturalistic kinds of colors and distorted forms and so on. So there are, there's something much deeper going on here than initially meets the eye. And Duchamp's new descending a staircase, of course, gets its share of attention. And the most famous lampoon being uh, the rude descending a staircase rush hour at the subway. <laughs> On the right, this is a little harder to see, but you have up here uh, sunrise in a lumberyard. That's one lampoon. And there's even another down here. And uh, the, the, the uh, caption says, Portrait of a lady going upstairs. She is going upstairs, not downstairs. Please remember this. If she were going downstairs, it would be like this, right there. And all these sort of um, playful misunderstandings of what's happening in Duchamp's painting go back to the question that gets repeated in the criticism time and time again, which is, where's the nude? People are used to seeing a, um, a, a title and then a painting that, uh, that is some approximation of what they expect in the title. And this is one of the critical questions that's raised in response to these, these kinds of paintings. Is, um, it's about the relationship between the artist and the viewer. Is the artist responsible for creating an intelligible, understandable painting? Or is the viewer responsible for learning a new language of art and sort of meeting the artist halfway? And of course, that's a debate that goes on for a very, very long time. Our research took us also beyond these shores to Paris. And um, you see here on the top, Ambrose Vollard, who was a, a, a revered dealer in Paris at the time. And below him is Walter Pock who we've now learned, you've now learned and we've all, we all know, was, um, one of, was instrumental in taking Davies and Kuhn around Paris and introducing them to the dealers, to the collectors, to the artists themselves. Well, Vallard sent a great deal, uh, very many paintings over um, to New York, and that was because Pac had gone to see him and they had gone through his gallery and through his storage room. And then Pac just sort of let it drop that one of Vollard's competitors was also sending a lot of paintings to the Armory Show. Pop became, I mean, Vollard became enraged and he said, that's it, I'm not showing you anything else. So we can see from the um, ledger on the left, if you look very closely at the top right, and it's a little hard to see, that the paintings that Vollard sent to the, American Associ the Association of American Painters and Sculptors went out in November of 1912. And Vollard said, you can't see anything else. I'm, not gonna, I'm shutting my storeroom to you. That's it. I don't want to deal with you anymore. And Pac writes in his memoirs later on, it was only after Vollard thought and knew that that boat had left for New York and nothing else could go to New York that Vollard opened his storerooms again and out came all of the very important lithographs and prints that Vollard eventually sent to, this, to New York to the Armory Show. But those didn't leave Paris until January 23rd, 1913, only three weeks before the Armory Show opened here, which meant that they were almost an afterthought. Um, they, were, they arrived here way too late to be included in the New York catalog or the New York supplement. We see them showing up again in the Chicago catalog and the Boston catalog. We know that many of those prints sold here because of the ledgers we have of all of the accounts from the 1913 Armory Show. Um, this was really a landmark event for the history of printmaking. I talk about that because I'm trained as a print curator, and I wasn't going to let this pass without really looking into the idea of what happened with printmaking in New York. And um, so Vollard's prints that came here and arrived late but were shown and very popular here uh, was a very important event associated with the Armory Show, and we'll get to that later. 
in our talk. So we're going to talk about uh, some discoveries we made in tracking down works that were in the Armory Show in 1913. So the first one we're going to talk about happens to be a print. On the top you see uh, Walt Kuhn, and um, he, as, as Kim said, he's, he writes his wife Vera. Thank God he wrote her so often because it's, been, it's given us a lot of important history of the Armory Show. But at the bottom, if you can see it, how do you do this? Okay, right here. Yeah. You can see that he's talking about Munch. And, and capital letters here, the Norwegian. Um, and he talks about how he's a big man and how his work is wonderful and how he's promised, he has promised Kuhn that he will send some paintings over to New York for the Armory Show, or the big show as they began to call it. Uh, Kuhn did not, get, did, did not get any paintings from Munch, uh, but he did, Munch did send eight prints. And one of them is this Madonna, which was in the Armory Show. Now, we, it's very difficult for us to, to really ascertain which prints were, which exact prints were in the Armory Show because of the fact that prints are made in addition. So we don't know which exact, which exact print was there. This one we do know, this Madonna, we know for sure was in the Armory Show, and we know that for two reasons. Um, first of all, Carl Zugrosser, who was a very famous print curator who uh, spent most of his career at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, went to see the Armory Show as a young man. And he had his catalog, and he drew images of some of the pieces that he saw that he really liked. And he drew an image of this Madonna in this state um, that he saw in the Armory Show. Munch often changed his prints very, he changed, every time he did something else to a print, he would change it. He, every time he printed it, he would add something, he would take something away. So we know that it was a print that looked like this. But what is really telling for us is that on the rear of this print, there, it's marked dollar sign 500. Munch was selling everything in Paris or in Germany or in, you know, in, in Norway where he was from. There was no reason why he would write $500. $500 happens to be the amount that he was asking for all of his prints in the exhibition. So this exact one, which we have upstairs, was seen in the Armory Show. Munch didn't sell anything out of the Armory Show, but turned out to be a great, great artist. Uh, this fabulous screen by Robert W. Chandler was a really exciting thing for us to get into the show. And Chandler was a surprise for us in that he's an American artist, a muralist, and a designer who's not very well known today, but was very popular in 1913 and was really the most warmly received artist, the most warmly received American in the Armory Show. And you can see on the left uh, one of the very few installation views from the New York venue. And you've got this uh, opening gallery with these screens all around the walls. All of these screens are by Robert Chandler. There were nine of them in this welcoming first gallery. And the one, uh, the one that we have on the right is called Leopard and Deer. And family tradition has it that this was uh, Chandler's tribute to a ferocious ex-wife. He was actually <laughs> involved in litigation with one and not quite finished dealing with an earlier one. And you, you can imagine, he, he led a very colorful life. Um, he uh, had a, um, a townhouse downtown in New York that was called the House of Fantasy that he decorated with murals like these and had wild all-night parties. Um, the uh, American artist George Bellows was forbidden to go by his wife. That was how wild they were. But uh, Chandler was incredibly, incredibly well received. And so it was really exciting for us. We had a, an amazing team of researchers who, uh, and one of them tracked down this painting. It was um, in 1913, it was owned by Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney. And uh, it was sold at auction. Um, you know, in, in recent memory, to a member of the, um, to, to a descendant of Chandler, who is uh, doing the wonderful project of trying to bring some of his screens back into the ancestral family home. And this needed some, uh, some conservation work because it's a painting on wood panel, and those can be uh, very fragile and change over time. And so it was really a pleasure for, for all of us to be able to bring it into its very best state and have it on view here. Art historians have always thought that um, the, the painting that you see on the top, The Fisherman's Family by Pierre Pouvy de Chavon, was in the Armory Show. And um, that's because in the original catalog, it's noted decorative panel by Pouvy, lent 
and it was lent to the Army Show by Martin Ryerson, who see, you see on the left of the screen, who was a very important collector in Chicago. So, of course, Kim and I traveled all over the country and all over Europe, looking at all the files from all these paintings that we wanted to borrow. And I got to Chicago, and there was no mention of that, of the Armory Show in the, in the Fisherman's Family file. And I quietly called Kim. I said, Kim, there's, I don't think this painting was in the Armory Show. There's no mention of it at all. Well, it turns out that was true. And the truth was brought to light to us by um, the woman who wrote the catalog essay on, on Puvis de Chavon, M.A. Brown Price, who said, no, it was not. The Fisherman's Family was not in the Armory Show because it was not owned by Martin Ryerson at the, in the beginning of 1913. He didn't buy it until the end of 1913. The Puvis that he owned in the beginning of 1913 was the painting that you see on the bottom, Le Verger. And that has been in New York ever since the late 1940s, up at CCNY. And so this is the first time that this Puvis de Chavon has ever been seen. It's reunited back with all of its friends. It's a 100-year reunion for this painting. Back with all its friends, with, with whom it, it appeared in, in 1913. So this has been a wonderful um, opportunity for us to bring this back within the fold of the true story of the Armory Show. So this is another find that, uh, that we can credit to someone else, one of, um, one of our fabulous research team, um, a very, uh, very smart um, art historian named Megan Fort, who was trying to find a particular Blumner painting from the Armory Show called Morning on Long Island. And we're lucky that Blumner left behind lots of diaries and correspondence and so on. And she just couldn't find any trace of the painting. She had consulted the Blumner experts. Nobody really held out any hope that this was going to be found. Um, she uh, just forgot about it for a couple months because we had plenty of other paintings to look for among the 1,400 that were on view, 1,400 works that were on view. And she took another run at it looked through the, uh, the diaries and the correspondence again, and realized that there was a painting whose title kept changing over time. It started as Morning on Long Island. It went to Winfield, Long Island Hill. It finally took a new name as Aspiration Winfield. And during that time, the painting itself underwent an amazing transformation. The canvas that you see was in the 1913 Armory Show, but it is not the same picture. And what she found out for us is that uh, Blumner, after, after the Armory Show, he devoted himself entirely to painting, gave up his architectural career, and he scraped down a number of his paintings and redid them, taking into consideration all the new styles he had, uh, he had been seeing, uh, principally at the Armory Show, and is looking at a, a much more abstract style, much bolder colors. And so this is the painting that was in the Armory Show, but it also shows the impact of the Armory Show, which is really fantastic. And you can also see on the left a page from his uh, diary that gives us a sense of how the painting looked in 1913. So it's rare to have such a beautifully documented discovery. It was really exciting for us. Megan's work again. <laughs> Um, for years, again, the painting on the top of the screen by George Brock, the Port of Antwerp, which he painted in 1906, was always thought to be the painting, the Port of Antwerp painting by Brock that was in the Armory Show. Um, and Megan went to work again, and she started looking around and found the picture of the installation of the Armory Show in Chicago. And if you look here, this is the Port of Antwerp here, hanging in Chicago. That's not this, but that is this. So she then went back into, into Catalogues Raisonne of George Brock and found another port of Antwerp and saw what it looked like and identified the one on the bottom that was in the Armory Show, which she then found in Switzerland. Um, and they were, they were generous enough to lend it, and we were thrilled because this is another painting. And for the first time in 100 years, it also has been associated with the exhibition. So on a quick note about sculpture, and we're going to move on to some of the new ideas we've developed. Um, our, one of our most, um, most firmly held goals for the show is that we are only going to include things that we know were in the Armory Show in 1913. And we stuck to that pretty closely, except in the case of sculpture sometimes. And the reason for that 
is that in 1913, the organizers of, of the Armory Show wanted to borrow marbles and bronzes, you know, the most elevated forms of sculpture. And they found that in many cases they weren't able to do that because they were um, too expensive to ship and too heavy, Lloyd's of London, where we see correspondence where Davies is saying Lloyd's, Lloyd's will not insure the marble, we have to take the plaster. And so for that reason, many of the works in the Armory Show in 1913 were plasters like um, the two Brancusis that you see on the left, Sleeping Muse and A Muse. And uh, so our goal was, of course, to get those plasters again for our exhibition. And what we found in many cases was that now those plasters are so fragile that they cannot travel. And so what you see on the right is Brancusi's Mademoiselle Pogani. That is not the plaster that was in the Armory Show. That's at the uh, Pompidou Center in Paris, too fragile to travel. What you see on the right is the marble from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And so ironically, we've sort of come full circle and bringing, in bringing the marble version that the uh, original organizers might have wanted. One of the, um, one of the really wonderful, uh, it's not a discovery, but it's something we've brought out about the Army Show, is that the Army Show just wasn't all American artists, or it wasn't just all European avant-garde artists but that what the organizers, and specifically Arthur B. Davies, wanted to do was teach the audience that was going to come to the 1913 exhibition that avant-garde art, as they were going to see from 1913, didn't spring up out of nowhere. That there was a long tradition of, of art that led up to the Matisses and the Cubists. And he wanted to show the audiences that some of the more traditional works that they now admired as old masters were really works that were berated and, and criticized, highly criticized by the critics when these works were shown at the time they were painted. So on your left, you see a Whistler who had died before the army in, early, in the early 20th century and by this time was considered a great American master. And on the right, people are surprised to see that there was a Daumier in the, in the exhibition. It was done in the 1850s. Daumier was a French artist who um, was so radical and, and really criticized the monarchy, the French monarchy, so widely that he was almost thrown in jail for his, for his caricatures. Um, he decided to sort of tone that down by the time he got to the mid-century, but continued to criticize French society in terms of high society and low society, women, lawyers, whatever he could pick to really you know, get to the core of what they were really all about. As he saw it, he painted and he also did cartoons that appeared in a lot of journals in 19th century France. So the, um, this is the third class carriage. He also did the first class carriage, the second class carriage. Third class carriage meaning not a horse pulled carriage but a train. And again, this is the idea of the train that's modernizing and changing civilization, not only in France but here as well. So he's making a lot of comments on French society, not only by what they're in, what they're traveling in and where they're going. Are they going to the city? Are they leaving the city, going back home to the countryside after they've worked? But he's also saying that the train is affecting all different, all of the generations of, of, of people in France. And so you see, um, you see three different generations that are pictured here. So this idea of the history of avant-garde art was a very important uh, piece of the Armory show. The, there was even an Aang drawing in the show and Kim and I, true to the purity of which we really pursued, which was to only show pieces that were in the Armory Show, wanted to find those two Aang drawings that were in the exhibition. The catalog only says drawing. And um, we could identify the lender, but that went to a dead end too. So we were not able to put any Aang drawings in the exhibition, but we were thrilled to be able to borrow this Daumier painting. So Marilyn alluded to uh, the fact that there were a number of American um, modernists in the show, what, we, what we've been calling proto-modernists, who are already aware of the avant-garde. And we, one of the things we really wanted to emphasize in the show is the presence of American art. Half the works in the Armory show were by Americans, and it was originally conceived as an opportunity for progressive Americans to show their work. They felt uh, that they didn't have enough opportunities. Not many dealers are showing uh, modern American art. And the National Academy of Design, the established artist organization of the period, is considered to be conservative and a little too exclusionary. So the Armory Show is meant to be an antidote to that for Americans. 
And the AAPS, who organizes the arm race show, begins as, well, they're a membership organization, so the show naturally is meant to be an exhibition of members, and they might invite some friends. And as the, uh, as the news starts to spread about the show, lots of artists are coming to the AAPS and saying, uh, how can I be involved? And so at the relatively last minute, about three weeks before the show opens, the AAPS gives people an opportunity to submit their works for review. And as a result of that, they choose a number of works, about 120 additional works, that really change the character of the American contribution. And you see some of them here. On the right is a work by Charles Sheeler. Uh, um, on the top, below is Joseph Stella. And these might not be the, uh, the styles that, they're that you're used to seeing for them. Uh, they're still very young artists. They're, they haven't found their mature styles yet. But it's fascinating to see them uh, on their way. They've already been exposed to uh, the Fauves, to Matisse, to Picasso, and they're experimenting with these new styles. And were it not for this jury, this late, uh, this late stage effort, they wouldn't have been a part of the show. On the left is another young American artist who was actually so promising that he was invited, uh, independently invited to join the exhibition, and that's uh, Morton Schomburg. And he's, again, another artist who, has, uh, who knows Matisse, who knows about Cubism, who's um, doing wonderful work, and he would be a household name today if it were not for his uh, untimely and very sad death in 1918 from the influenza epidemic. Another thing that we discovered, as I said, I'm trained as a print curator, and I wasn't going to let the opportunity pass. And, um, and so here we have on the left um, John Sloan's The Picture Seller, and on the right Maurice Denis' painting, uh, our print. And um, what, what we realized after doing a lot of counting and, and, and checking was that there were 274 works sold out of the Armory Show. Of those 274 works sold out of the Armory Show, um, 130 of them were works of art on paper, specifically were prints. Of those 130 prints, which were basically lithographs or etchings, woodcuts, um, 128 of them were European and two were American. One of the American pieces sold out of the Armory Show, one of the American prints, was Sloan's The Picture Seller. And it, it, it depicts William Macbeth, who was one of the best, well, he was a very important artist or gallery dealer selling American art at the time, and Macbeth bought that one. And these are small. These are very small prints. The other print that sold was by Walter Pock, and it was a copy of a Renoir painting. Of the 128 prints that were European that were sold out of the Armory Show, 100 of them were that batch of prints that were sent over by Vollard. And most of them were color prints. So you can imagine they're hung, for those of you who have seen the exhibition upstairs, we hung that wall very tightly. Number one, because I wanted to get as many prints as I could into the exhibition. But number two, also because that's how they were hung in the Armory Show. There, there, were, there were hundreds and hundreds of prints. Over half of the works in the Armory Show were works on paper. And most of those works were hung in just a few galleries. And so we know that they were hung very tightly, which is why we chose to hang our show that way. But you can imagine a public that is used to looking at works on paper, specifically American prints that were black and white and tiny. And all of a sudden, they're bombarded with all of this color. So fine art color lithography, as opposed to commercial lithography, which was, very, which was used a lot by advertisers at this point in the US, but this fine art color lithography really did come to New York and to the United States in 1913 by Vollard as possibly an afterthought because he didn't ship those pieces off until very late. That's a very important discovery that we made for this exhibition. So one last quick thought, and we're going to go on to your questions. Uh, Duchamp and his new Descending a Staircase were, of course, the big news that we remember from the Armory show. People stood in line to see the painting. Uh, lots of descriptions of it, like a splinter salad, a collection of saddlebags, most famously an explosion in a shingle factory. 
Um, but what's important to remember, and what's, what we found out, is that uh, the, the painting was installed with other cub Cubist paintings in a corner gallery of the armory. There was a final, very large, climactic gallery that was installed with the work of the Fauves and Brancusi and Matisse. And so it was really fascinating for us to realize that while Duchamp was the big sensation, the organizers considered Matisse and the Fauves to be the most modern of the moderns, the climax of the armory show, and they placed uh, them at the very end as, um, as sort of a, a pinnacle moment for what's the latest, what's the most modern. So that was kind of unexpected for us. So we want to, we want to hear your questions now, and we ask that you please uh, line up behind either of these microphones. And if you would um, say your name and ask your question, and if you wouldn't mind just uh, keeping it to one question so that anybody else who wants to ask can uh, have theirs as well. Thank you for a wonderful lecture. Uh, Kim, how long did it take the public to accept the cubisms and the futurisms uh, as to be more than, than something shocking and, and to become mainline and, and eventually masterpieces? Boy, that's a big question, and I think it's something that happens very gradually, and you can sort of trace, you can trace that in the history of American art, and I think it's something that uh, swings back and forth, and of course we know that, um, well, Davy says New York will never be the same again. American art will never be the same again. Of course, that's not true. American art doesn't change overnight. Some artists adopt the new styles, others don't. Some consider it a great experience of freedom. Others think it's um, the, you know, a terrible thing for American art. So it does take decades, and there's, there are moments where artists work sort of return to more naturalistic styles, especially after World War I, even in Europe as well. And then, some, and then they eventually swing back to abstraction in the 40s. So, and I think there are still people, there are still people who don't care for abstraction. So it's, um, I think it's something that's very gradual. Thank you. Terry Brennan, uh, it was, the question is uh, very similar to his. How important, well how much of a stimulus basically did uh, the Armory Show give to uh, American realism and to the development, say, of uh, Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney's Studio Museum down on 8th Street, and even the studio building on, on 10th Street, uh, uh, and, and even to Greenwich Village as a center of American art, because, you know, up until in 1929, when Ms. Vanderbilt offered the Metropolitan Museum of Art 500 American realist paintings and, 500, and $5 million in a, in, in a gift for a new American wing, they rejected it. So, I mean, was, was it very, very gradual or, and, uh, you know, did Greenwich Village, did it stimulate Greenwich Village as a, uh, as a center of American art? Did it? Well, shall we, why don't we split this in half and I'll talk yeah. about uh, Whitney and you can talk about Greenwich Village? Okay. okay. Um, well, I think, it, it's interesting, I think Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney is very involved with, with um, realists as opposed to um, abstract painters, as you, um, as you observed. And you can look at the impact the Armory Show has on the realists, the Ashcan School, and it seems to have been relatively minimal. And there's, there's a lot of concern that these artists are express, uh, expressing, especially people like Robert Henry, um, uh, concern that, that abstraction and the Fauvist style will just become a new fashion, a new orthodoxy that you must follow in order to be modern. And he's more concerned with um, independence, freedom, having your own style, and being able to work in your own way, whatever, whether that's realism or whether that's abstraction. And so I think for many of these artists, they, they sort of continue to go their way and are stalwart champions of, um, of a national, identifiable American art. So I think, in a way, the Armory Show, um, for some people, strengthens that position, and they continue uh, in that vein. So it's more of a reaction against rather than a reaction for. And, and I also want to bring up what you wrote in your essay about the, uh, the figure in motion by Robert Henry and the fact that 
you know, this was his declaration. I almost called it a declaration of independence of an American artist, saying we can paint the way we want. It's going to remain figural. We don't have to paint abstractly because when Henry, as you point out in your essay, you should say it and talk about it, but uh, that he knew what that he he had seen the blue nude. He probably had seen the nude descending the staircase, and adamantly decided to paint the figure in motion just for the Armory show, almost as his declaration of independence. So, I think that's a very important point that you brought out in, in the essay. Um, all, as far as Greenwich Village is concerned and har harboring the artists, a lot of the artists after the Armory show and in the years following, sort of migrated away from Greenwich Village. Um, and that was because there was a great uh, shutdown of this idea of new freedom and freedom of speech um, because of the oncoming of World War I. So a lot, while literature continued to flourish, and while theater, the Provincetown Players, be really developed, you know, got together after the Armory Show, a lot of other movements, can, including the arts, sort of shut down in Greenwich Village. Mabel Dodge moves out to Taos eventually. Um, and, and a lot of the other artists ceased to do what, ceased to take part in the Greenwich Village scene. So, uh, so in that way, it, it's not that the Armory Show had that influence, it's the events that occurred in New York after the Armory Show that caused a lot of these people to disperse. And then later on in the teens, you, you see a lot of these young Americans who are speaking out for everybody's rights being deported, including Emma Goldman. So that, that whole scene sort of abated after 1913. Yeah, our senior historian, Casey Blake, um, who's a professor of American history at Columbia, uh, pointed out uh, that the, uh, where before, the, before World War I, Greenwich Village is a place where art and politics meet. After World War I, they seem to be, they seem to be separated and they don't work together as closely as they did before. Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. It's wonderful to have a fabulous program on art. At the New York Historical Society, we will have plenty more. And just in case you haven't seen our brochure, coming up on January 15th, we have Culture Shock, New York and Paris, 1913, about the right of spring on the other side of the Atlantic in France, and the Armory Show as well will be discussed again with Leon Botstein, Barbara Haskell, and Susan Lacey. There are still some tickets left, so I encourage everyone to come back. Thank you so much, Marilyn Kushner, Kim Orchid.